from PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we listen back to a 2013 interview with Chris Stedman. We talk about his book, Faithiest, how an atheist found common ground with the religious, and we talk about his work as one of the first humanist chaplains at Harvard University. Stedman talks to us about his perspective both as an atheist and as a former evangelical. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're rebroadcasting an interview from a couple of years ago with Chris Stedman. At the time when we spoke to him, Chris Stedman was the humanist chaplain at Yale University, but now he is the executive director of the Yale Humanist Community. Stedman is the author of the book Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious, and he's a contributing editor at Religion News Service and an advisor to Religion Dispatches. Chris calls himself a committed humanist and an interfaith activist, and he's previously served as the co-founder and emeritus managing director of State of Formation at the Journal of Interreligious Dialogue, and also as the atheist columnist for Religion News Service, and as a content developer and adjunct trainer for the Interfaith Youth Corps in Chicago. I'm really intrigued by your journey because it seems almost like you and I have gone in parallel but opposite directions, because I was raised an atheist, mm-hmm. and am now a person of religious faith, and you you have an evangelical background, and you now consider yourself to be an atheist and a humanist. Yeah, that's correct. When, <laughs> I, when I wake up in the morning, I still have an inner atheist that looks back at me in the mirror and says, you're a kook. Huh? And I, I wonder, um, as, you have, as you have encountered your work in interfaith dialogue as an atheist, do you still have an inner evangelical who pushes back and says, goodness gracious, uh, there's still something there? Or is that, is that voice entirely gone? It's funny you should ask that because I think that there are a number of people who think that I'm not actually an atheist, that I'm just pretending and that I'm actually a, a secret Christian. Mm. So uh, I should be careful how I answer this. I don't want to add any fuel to the fire. Uh, but in all seriousness... It's a very interesting question you pose. I mean, I think in many ways, one of the reasons why I um, find the work of interfaith dialogue so meaningful is because I've, ha- I've sort of sat at another seat at the table at, at one point in my life. And actually, I was recently asked this question in an interview, or not this exact question, but a similar question. And, you know, I really, I do think my background as a Christian sort of helps me understand where the, quote, other side is coming from sometimes. Now, of course, there's it's not as if there's just two sides. But having been a Christian at one point in my life, I think I understand at least what one experience of being religious is like. Um, I understand what it feels like to be a part of that community. Um, I understand the ways in which religious identity is not just about belief. It's about um, narrative. It's about uh, community. It's about... Uh, cultural identity. And, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't say that my experience as a Christian gives me any kind of expertise on all Christians or, you know, makes me any kind of authority on Christianity. But it does, it's, it does, 
I do sort of, you know, reflect back on my past and on the community I once belonged to and what I once believed. And it helps me, I think, have a little bit more empathy for people who don't see the world the same way that I do, because I've sort of been in another position at one point in my life. So I think that there is some, you know, there's a part of me that still connects with that community some ways and, and, and still sort of, you know, remembers what that felt like and um, how important it was to me at one point in my life. And, and I think there's a part of me way deep down that uh, still is like wrapping, you know, it, its mind around, uh, to anthropomorphize that part of me, is wrapping its mind around the fact that uh, undergone such a radical shift from being a believer in God to not believing in God. Well, in a, in a recent Huffington Post article that you wrote, Six Tips for Christians on Talking to Non-Christians, one of the things that I noted in that article was that you mentioned the diversity of Christianity. And so you come from an evangelical background, and we can talk a little bit about that. But one of the things that you highlight in this article is that you know Christianity is a, is a diverse, non-monolithic narrative, to use your word. But before we get into that, I, I guess I would ask... Is atheism also a diverse, non-monolithic narrative, or is there really just one atheist voice that is is speaking in the culture right now? Well, I think that the problem that the atheist community bumps up against right now is a problem that a lot of communities face, which is that the sort of louder voices, the voices that are more soundbite-friendly, the voices that get picked up by you know the the, the media are voices that are often a bit more exclusionary, that are um, more oppositional, that are more tribal, that, um, you know, those those voices of conflict are, are much more accessible and, um, and media-friendly than voices of cooperation. And I think that it's hard for any group of people to really highlight its diversity uh, in a world that's so fixated on, on voices of division um, at the exclusion of voices of cooperation. So... Yeah, you know, I think having been immersed in movement atheism and in the atheist community for a number of years now, it's very clear to me that there is no one true atheist. There's no one way of being an atheist, and that atheists come in all shapes and sizes. They have all different beliefs and backgrounds. They, you know, value and prioritize different things. But that unfortunately, the atheist community is most regularly presented in a certain way, in a certain light that only some atheist voices are really lifted up. And um, I think that, you know, when I was coming out as queer, part of what enabled me to do so was that I was able to see that there were many different ways of being queer, and I encountered a number of different queer narratives. And I think that it's hard right now for atheists who are looking to see their identity and their values represented in the broader culture because there really is only, you know, a, a very narrow vision of atheism being presented in, in the media right now. And I think similarly, you know, Christianity is at a sort of similar crossroads where a lot of Christians, I think, who um, have been for years doing, you know, they've been in the trenches, they've been doing progressive activism and, and trying to advance social justice issues. I mean, their voices um, are getting drowned out by people like, the Fred, you know, the Fred Phelpses of the world. And I think that this is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about interfaith coalition building, because it gives the pluralists in all different communities, religious communities, non-religious communities, an opportunity to bring their voices together and to speak in one voice. And, and to by sort of building these coalitions of solidarity, we can, I think, begin to overcome some of these voices of intolerance, which are just so much louder. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back today to a 2013 interview with Chris Stedman. At the time, he was assistant humanist chaplain at Harvard University. He's now the executive director of the Yale Humanist Community. He's also the author of the book Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. If you'd like to find out more about Stedman and his work, you can do that at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. In your book, Faithiest, you, you recount in a memoir style your journey uh, towards your work now. And one of the things that you said drew you to faith initially was its social justice aspects. And what I heard in your answer just then is that you also are still driven by this notion of equality and justice, even as you work in interfaith questions. And... If you don't mind recounting briefly for our listeners sort of how that journey took you from from uh, a background that sort of had no faith at all but wasn't hostile to faith, sort of through evangelicalism, I realize this is a big question, but through evangelicalism and, and then onwards into, into your present work. So I, I did grow up irreligious. Um, you know, we weren't, I didn't hear the word God in my household growing up, but I didn't hear the word atheist either. We just, you know, religion wasn't a significant part of our lives. And then when I was around 11, I became a born-again, rather fundamentalist Christian. And looking back on it, I think there were sort of two primary factors that played into that. The first is that about a year prior to my conversion, I started reading books like Roots, Hiroshima, The Diary of Anne Frank. These were books that not only sort of increased my awareness of some of the greatest atrocities that have occurred throughout human history, but they told the story of what it was like for people who experienced that. And I was just filled with empathy and suddenly just filled to the brim with questions about meaning and purpose and suffering and justice and really didn't feel like I had a framework for thinking or talking about those things. And then a year later, my parents separated and uh, my family underwent some really um, dramatic shifts. Our, our dynamic changed overnight, and I was looking for stability and structure. So when some friends invited me to go to this after-school youth group at this non-denominational church, I went, and right away they were very welcoming. They provided the kind of structure and stability I was looking for, and they gave me very clear-cut answers to the questions that I had about justice and suffering. So it seemed like it was going to be a great fit. About two months later, I realized it wasn't quite that easy. <laughs> when I realized that I was queer. And the community that I was a part of was very theologically conservative, biblical literalists, and, you know, they um, weren't shy about it either. <laughs> they were, you know, they, they preached against homosexuality from the pulpit regularly, talked about it in study groups and discussion groups. The library was full of materials about how homosexuality is either a choice or possibly the result of demonic possession, just became increasingly despondent and um, the sort of grand irony is that I was looking for community and for a way to make sense of and act upon uh, an act to counter suffering and yet um, you know as a result of this process really became um, very insular and isolated cut myself off from a lot of my social relationships and my personal level of suffering went up really significantly so around that time, my mother found a journal I was keeping where I was detailing this struggle, a prayer journal, and she um, went to the phone book, called up local churches in the community, found a Christian minister who could offer me a different perspective on sexuality, and took me to speak with him the next day. After that, I became very involved in progressive Christian churches, found acceptance in Christian churches before I found it in my public high school for being queer, um, and really felt like, you know, that this was my community, that they 
accepted me when no one else did. And I felt like I, I wanted to help, help other people. And the people who had helped me at that point in my life were Christian ministers. And so I felt like maybe I was being called to ministry. So I went to a Lutheran school to study religion. And it was there that my Christian professors actually pushed me and encouraged me to ask really critical questions about what I believed and why. They invited me to sort of explore the foundations of my beliefs. And it was at that time that I realized that when I had converted, it wasn't really because of the metaphysical truth claims of Christianity. I sort of took those on as a package deal. It was really because I was looking for community and I was looking for structure and I was looking for answers to questions that felt too large to answer alone. And I realized that I had actually been raised to value um, justice and kindness and charity and community for all of my life before I was a Christian. And that for me, those things existed apart from these theological truth claims um, within Christianity. And, and as I considered these questions, I realized that for me, believing in God really didn't make sense. And uh, it wasn't something that made sense intellectually. And it also wasn't something that I felt. You know, I just didn't feel the presence of God. I, as I reflected on it more, I felt like that was something that other people had really seemed to feel very strongly, and I never really had it in the same way. But at first, being an atheist, I, I wasn't sure what that meant, I, and I really didn't know what it meant in terms of relating to other people, believers in particular. Really struggled to have constructive conversations about religion. I was very happy to study and argue about religion in the classroom, but when it came to talking about the role that it, religious beliefs played in people's lives, um, I just really didn't didn't know how to have those conversations. And, and as time went on, I realized that I was really missing out on a lot of opportunities to build understanding with people who saw the world differently than I did. And that's when I be, became passionate about interfaith. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're listening back to an interview with Chris Stedman, the Yale Humanist Community Executive Director and former chaplain to the humanist community at Yale University. We'll be back in a moment. Hello. David Dalt here. You may be wondering why we take time out of the podcast to have these little minute-long breaks with the crazy music underneath. The answer is simple. We are trying to design the podcast so that it pays for itself, and so these are places where someday we will have some advertising. Now, let's say that you have been interested in getting into some sort of podcasting advertising platform where you want to promote your product. We would be a wonderful mid-market solution for you, uh, particularly if you want to reach an educated audience that really, really likes stuff about religion. Uh, so that's what this is here for. So if you would like to learn more about advertising with us, you can go to advertisecast.com or you can contact us through our website. We would love, love, love to work with you. Thank you always for listening. Okay, back to the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back to a 2013 interview with Chris Stedman. He's the author of the book, Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. When we spoke to him in 2013, Stedman was assistant humanist chaplain at Harvard University. He's currently executive director of the humanist community at Yale University. I appreciate you taking a moment to expand upon your story. But what I hear in that is a, is a series of, of multiple coming out processes, coming out as queer, but also within uh, coming out as queer within a religious community, but then also coming out in the college environment as a person who realized that you didn't have the faith that you went in there thinking that you had. And then among the atheist community, coming out as a person that actually takes 
religion seriously and isn't hostile towards it. So there, am I hearing correctly that, that you've had these multiple coming out experiences? Uh, yeah. You know, I don't always frame it in that way, but I think that that's actually a very apt way to, to describe it. But I think that, I, I mean, I just love this, this idea of coming out, this metaphor of coming out. And as a queer person, I think that, you know, it, it's actually something that really can be expanded beyond sexual orientation. I mean, the ways in which we sort of reveal ourselves to other people, reveal our, our sort of most, our most earnest questions, our most um, sort of uh, pressing and issues and, and the ways in which we sort of try to make meaning of the world and, and make meaning of our lives and, and how we try to build relationships with the other people. I mean, it is really just a series of revelations. It's a series of coming outs. And, um, and you know, I think for me, having come out as queer... I started coming out when I was around 13, thanks to my mother's intervention. And I think having to challenge sort of those norms and assumptions that I had inherited about what I was supposed to be, who I was supposed to be, um, I think that once I began that process in regards to my sexual orientation, it made it much easier for me to begin or to begin to question and challenge other norms, um, other sort of inherited assumptions. And, and so you know, as time went on, I began to be able to question other things. And, you know, I try to make it very clear in my work and in my book that I'm not an atheist because I'm gay, because I'm queer. I think that I know many people of faith who are queer and seem to have no problem reconciling their sexual orientation with their religious tradition. And uh, I'm grateful that those resources are there in faith communities, because when I was coming out as queer, I really needed someone in the Christian community who could be a resource for me, which my mom uh, fortunately sort of understood and identified but I will say that I think that that process of coming out as queer sort of set me on the course of, of, of you know, coming out in other ways and being able to challenge um, these other ideas about, you know, what, who people should be and, and how they should express themselves and how they should identify. And one of the things that makes me so passionate about this, the idea of religious pluralism and of a kind of compassionate and constructive dialogue between people of faith and the non-religious is that I think it will contribute to the kind of world where people aren't so afraid of people who seem different, where these differences are humanized and we're able to um, to allow people to live their lives in the way that is most authentic to them. And that includes people of different faiths, includes people of different sexual orientations and gender identities and expressions. And I think what it requires is that we come out to one another about our most central uh, values and beliefs and, and, you know, what informs our identities and, and what we most, what, what, what is central to who we are. And I think interfaith dialogue creates a space for that kind of coming out. It's interesting that you mentioned, you know, the, the intentionality in changing the world because what we see around us is that the world absolutely is changing. And I'm thinking in particular right now of the Pew research that has recently shown the rise of the, of the nuns, those who, who have no religious identity and are not seeking a religious identity. Yeah. It's interesting, the, the, the language of the nuns, because that's a different language from both sort of classical atheism and new atheism. It's more sort of a religious apathy. The big study that Pew did on the nuns was so fascinating to me because, first of all, looking at that study, it's very clear that actually the number of self-identified atheists and agnostics really has not risen much at all in the wake of new atheism, which I think is a big surprise for a lot of atheists. I think that, 
you know, there's this idea that the increased visibility that came with with the sort of new atheist writings uh, created, you know, this sort of rise in atheism. What I think it did is it raised the visibility of atheism and enabled atheists to become a little bit more organized. But the number of people who identify as atheists in the U.S. has remained relatively static. And so there's this mass exodus from organized religion, but very few of these people leaving religion say that they don't believe in God. If I'm not mistaken, around 12% of the nuns identify as atheists, around 17% as agnostic. And among those 12 and 17%, around 36% of those folks claim to believe in a God or universal spirit, I think. So I'm very interested in what those people believe and what they mean by atheist and agnostic. Even more revealing, I think, is what those numbers uh, demonstrated about the nuns' attitude toward religion. You know, you would maybe expect that the majority of nuns would see religion as a, a negative force in society. But in fact, um, a majority of nuns see it as playing a positive role in society. They themselves are not looking for a faith. Um, the majority of them say they're not looking for a religious community. But they also don't have a, any kind of sort of antagonistic stance towards religion, the majority of them. And so I'm just, I'm so fascinated by this group of people who are religiously unaffiliating, who aren't looking for religious community, but don't see religion as, you know, certainly don't have the goal of sort of uh, working toward a religion-free world. And, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of really interesting research to be done about this group of people. You know, similarly, as you, you talk about the sort of the way the world is changing right now, I think another great thing to look at is the sort of huge sea change we've seen in the last decade around um, opinions about uh, homosexuality and about same-sex marriage. In the last decade, 14% of Americans have changed their mind about, about same-sex marriage in favor of supporting same-sex marriage. I mean, that's huge. We haven't seen a shift like that on any sort of social issue in a long time. Uh, the number one, I think this is according to a, a poll that Gallup did, the number one reason that these 14% of people uh, of the American public said that they changed their mind in favor of supporting same-sex marriage, number one reason is because they have a relationship with someone who's LGBT. Another poll that Gallup did in 2009 found just that, that the overwhelming majority of people who support same-sex marriage have a relationship with someone who's LGBT. This, to me, suggests the kind of grassroots organizing that can be done between communities of different faiths and these sort of nuns and this atheist and agnostic community, which is still very marginal and very marginalized. I think that it suggests that those kinds of relationship build, uh, building exercises on a grassroots level are fundamentally important right now. You know, for all the good that is being done or has been done in terms of raising the visibility of atheism, I think the time has come now for a very different kind of conversation about atheism, especially as so many people are leaving religion, but very few of them are identifying as atheists or agnostic. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back today to a 2013 interview with Chris Stedman. He's the author of the book, Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. At the time that we spoke in 2013, Stedman was the assistant humanist chaplain at Harvard University. He's currently the executive director of the humanist community at Yale University. So this, this shout-out to relationality that you've just given, this, this notion that the massive change in public opinion around gay marriage issues and homosexuality has come because people have an actual relationship with someone who is queer or bisexual or, or gay or lesbian. It seems like relationality is at the heart of your interfaith work as well, and that the, the model that you're drawing from is that, you know, if we are truly going to have a properly functioning secular political space, and we'll talk about secularity, I think, in a minute, 
we need to have robust relationships across the divide. We need to have atheists willing to talk to people of faith and people of faith willing to talk to atheists. And you've, in fact, created several online opportunities for, for this sort of dialogue to happen. Could you speak a little bit about, about what that has been like and what you've, what you've discovered in the process of creating these online opportunities? You know, one of the most fascinating things about the world that we live in today, in my opinion, is just how much you know, the internet and social media has contributed to how interconnected and globalized our world is today. I mean, you can connect with someone on the other side of the world who has a totally different set of life experiences than you do. And in theory, this is a really great thing, right? It, it creates more opportunities for people to come into contact with people who have different life experiences and, and believe different things. And, and it, you know, in theory, it should help contribute to a more pluralistic society. Unfortunately, you know, the reality is that there are significant limitations to online dialogue. You know, there, there have been a number of studies that have shown that when you don't have to make eye contact with someone um, that you're speaking with, your level of empathy goes down really, really significantly. And so I think that it's difficult. And you, you can, if you're looking for evidence of this, you can just go look in the comment threads of like any article on the internet, or you can just search any topic on Twitter that's slightly controversial and you'll find a lot of really dehumanizing language. You'll find people who are just talking past one another, yelling at each other. You know, I think that you know, social media and the internet and online forums present a sort of first of their kind opportunity to connect with people who you know are are very unlike yourself. But also, it can be that much more difficult, I think, to have constructive and compassionate conversations. I've been, you know, very involved in, in online dialogue and, and, and yeah, as you said, sort of creating spaces for it to occur. But as time goes on, I'm increasingly skeptical about how much of an impact it can have and really think that, you know, it's, it's important to create opportunities for that kind of thing. But I think that um, it's much more effective to have dialogue in the sort of quote unquote real world it grounded in you know relationships where you have to be in the same space as someone else and you have to be able to shake their hand or give them a hug or look them in the eye and so I think you know on the one hand I really you know I'm excited about and support some of these online efforts and on the other hand I have some sort of very you know real skepticism about just how effective they can be in your book, Faithiest, one of the things that you keep bringing into the conversation and it, it keeps sort of bouncing on the surface of the conversation is the question of labels. And in particular, the word secular keeps coming to the fore. And I was intrigued by this because a few months ago I, I interviewed Jacques Berliner Blau, who wrote a, a book yeah. on, on American secularism, and he has a very definite idea about what the secular space of America looks like. And then uh, a couple of months ago, I was also on a conference call with Ibu Patel, and he has a different vision of, of what secularism looks like. And I guess I want to ask you, if you were to define the term secular, how do you define that term? Before I respond to that question, I think that it's worth sort of contextualizing this. I think that the term secularism has come to be widely misunderstood and misused. And I think that some of it, some of this comes from the religious right as an organized force um, that has tried to sort of turn straw man secularism into this thing that they can prop up and um, use as a wedge. And I also think that some folks in on the sort of atheist and agnostic side of the spectrum have misused secularism 
to mean the sort of elimination of or absence of religion in the public square. And I think that, you know, uh, they're both sort of, you know, wrongly framing secularism in the same way. For me, secularism does not mean the removal of or absence of religion in the public square. It just strictly means secular government, right? So uh, the U.S. government is not supposed to sort of privilege any one religious perspective over another. It's not supposed to give a special advantage or special recognition to certain religions. And it's supposed to protect the rights of all religious minorities, including the non-religious. And yet, you know, I think that part of part of the problem that we see today in terms of discussions about religion is that there's this idea that we can't talk about religion in the public square. We can't talk about it in public schools. We can't talk about it in the government. And so, you know, on the one hand, kids aren't learning about religion and we're seeing sort of, you know, huge religious illiteracy among this generation and areas where secularism isn't being respected and it should be. And then there are also these areas where secularism is sort of being wrongly used to push discussions about religion and identity and values out of the public square. And I mean, personally, I want to know what people believe and, and sort of what, you know, how their religious values inform the way that they're voting, um, the positions that they take. And I think that we need to be talking about these things. So I don't think that secularism means let's not talk about religion. I think it just means that there needs to be, you know, we need to be very clear about, you know, what we're talking about when we talk about religion. <laughs> and um, we also need to be clear about, you know, not giving any sort of preferential treatment to certain religious ideas over others. Yeah, for example, I don't think that President Obama's support for interfaith and community service efforts on college and university campuses infringes on the first, uh, on, on our religious freedom at all, because interfaith dialogue programs give no preferential treatment to any religion over another, and they also create an opportunity for people to be able to sort of speak openly and honestly about their religious differences. Now, if the government was supporting an initiative that specifically promoted, you know, Christian community service over others, that would be problematic. And I think that that distinction is too often not recognized. And unfortunately, some people associate anything that is government supported that has anything to do with religion as necessarily problematic, when in fact, that's not what secularism means. I, I started reading, I have a, a, a bunch of books right now that I've started reading, uh, but I started reading How to Be Secular and found it so far to be a very enlightening an important work. And, you know, of course, Ibu and I have talked about this a number of times. And, you know, I think that, I think that secularism needs to be reclaimed by people who see it as consistent with pluralism, rather than, you know, I think it, it I think the time has come to challenge the idea that secularism means um, no religion in the public square at all. There's a quotation that's going through my, my mind right now from the television show House. He says, if you could reason with religious people, there would be no religious people. There's an atheist voice that claims that all religion is irrationalism. And because of that, there's a desire on the part of that type of atheist voice to remove religious discourse from the public sphere entirely. Sure. I wonder if you would if you could contrast your vision of robust atheism over against that, which we might call new atheism or militant atheism. I mean, look, I think that these kinds of essentialist generalizations are just, they're just not helpful. And I don't understand how anyone can think that they are. To say that all religious people are delusional or just don't think critically about their religious beliefs, I mean, it's its bizarre to me. It's irrational to say that and to think that to me. 
when I think about religious people that I know, so, you know, I, I think about many people who are far more intelligent than I am, who have given much more thoughts to their, you know, worldview than even I have. And just because we've sort of arrived at different conclusion in this one area means that they must thus, they must then be less rational than I am. I mean, it's just so patently wrong. I don't believe that they actually think that when they're saying that. I think that Oftentimes, those kinds of comments come from the, the sort of innate tribal instincts we have to outgroup people who aren't a part of our community. I think that, you know, if someone act, who says that something to that effect actually sort of takes a step back and thinks about it and thinks about the people that they know and, and or people whose work that they've read, I mean, there's no way that they can honestly believe that. Yeah, and I, I love the way that you frame this question because I think that atheists can be totally forthright about what they believe. You don't have to sort of dance around what you believe. You don't have to sort of um, soft pedal it. You can be totally frank and honest and forthright and also not cast people who disagree with you as being, you know, just totally misled or as, as not having the same sort of mental faculties as you do. I would love to see on, you know, all sides of the religious and non-religious table I would love to see people recognize the sort of humanity and the commonality across these lines of difference. I would love to see atheists recognizing that their religious friends and neighbors and and peers, many of them have given the same amount of thought to these questions and have arrived at a different conclusion and vice versa. I would love to see religious communities recognize that atheists are often, you know, just as concerned about questions of justice. And we have to drop these generalizations that that we hold about different groups of people and recognize that each community, and I feel like now we're coming full circle to near the beginning of the conversation, every community of people is incredibly diverse and, and full of all different uh, sort of expressions of that identity. We just can't use those kinds of generalizations when we're talking about groups of people that are so diverse and hold so many different beliefs just within their one community. We're listening back to a 2013 interview with Chris Stedman. He's the author of the book, Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, Dave Dalt here. Earlier in the show, I talked about podcast monetization through advertising. But let's say that you, as a listener, don't have anything to sell right now, but you still want to support Things Not Seen. We can make that happen. Here's how it works. You could go to our thingsnotseenradio.com website or csec.org and make a one-time donation. It would be tax-deductible, and that would be wonderful. But you can also support us on an ongoing basis through a platform called Patreon. Now, here's how that works. You set the amount, $1, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever an episode of Things Not Seen is worth to you. And every time that we release a new episode, you would be charged on your credit card for that amount. You set it. You set how long you do it. It's completely up to you, but it really would help us. So please go to our website or go to patreon.com and set it up. And we thank you always for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. 
Today, we're listening back to a 2013 interview with Chris Stedman. At the time, he was assistant chaplain for humanists at Harvard University. Now he's the executive director of the Yale Humanist Community. He's also the author of the book, Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. If you'd like to find out more about Stedman, you can do that at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Jews and Christians have the Bible. Muslims have the Quran. The Vedas and the Bhagavad Gita are there for the Hindus. Is there a central text, or are there central texts for atheists that you would recommend or that you would point to? Well, I mean, the answer to that, the sort of easy answer to that question is no. Um, (laughs) I came to recognize that I didn't believe in God when I was in college, but I really sort of struggled to articulate my values once I did that, because as a Christian, I had this, you know, easy sort of framework, um, to say, you know, I can I could point to different verses in the Christian scripture and I could get to sort of, you know, resonate with what value I was holding. And I didn't really have that same kind of framework as an atheist. And eventually I, I began to identify as a, a humanist, ethically and philosophically, um, secular, a secular humanist to be a little bit more precise. And um, there are these, you know, great, very sort of short resources called the Humanist Manifestos. There have been three different... Um, editions of the Humanist Manifesto, and, and I really like those. They, they really um, feel consistent with my worldview and with the things that I value most deeply. I also think that there are you know, a number of great you know, writers and thinkers who have expressed uh, humanist values in ways um, that I uh, have found to be you know, very inspiring. I, I look at you know, writers like Paul Kurtz, um, and, and even sort of tracing back through the history of humanist thought back to even Epicurus. And, and, and I also think that there are, you know, if you're looking for a sort of a, a great kind of entry point into the conversation around humanism, my colleague at the humanist community at Harvard, Greg Epstein's book, Good Without God, is a sort of great starting point for that, for people who are sort of wanting to learn a little bit more about humanism as a philosophy and as a life stance. So those are a couple of recommendations I would have. But no, There's no sort of central text for atheism, and I think it's likely to stay that way. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're listening back today to a 2013 interview with Chris Stedman. At the time that we interviewed him, he was the humanist chaplain at Harvard University, and now he's the executive director of the humanist community at Yale University. He's the author of Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. It's clear that there have been a lot of frustrations and roadblocks along the way, but I'm also interested in what it is that gives you the most hope right mm-hmm. now and what you look to as having the most promise. Sure. Well, I, I see some some very radical shifts occurring within organized movement atheism. Uh, for example, the Secular Student Alliance is this national organization that coordinates with secular campus groups all across the country, so at colleges, universities, atheists, agnostics... Humanists, the non-religious, are organizing student groups, and, and uh, this national organization coordinates with them. And over the last few years, they have uh, recorded that secular student groups, uh, they've seen a huge rise in secular student groups engaging in collaborative programs with religious groups on their campuses. Just uh, really one of the sort of biggest areas of program growth among secular student groups. Um, just an, uh, not even a few years ago, you know, very, I, would, I don't want to say very few, but but not many secular student groups were doing interfaith outreach type efforts. And, and now um, that's really changed and there's a lot of collaboration happening. More generally in the movement, I'm seeing a shift towards more community building, 
more dialogue with religious um, individuals and communities. And, and I, you know, I, I am in a very sort of privileged position in my work. I get to travel all around the country and even around to other parts of the world and get to see the ways in which atheists and, and religious believers are beginning to have more, you know, more dialogue and, and are cooperating more and more. And that really is inspiring to me. And, I, you know, I look at some of the shifts among millennials, among people under the age of 30, um, and not just the shift away from organized religion. I don't necessarily find that inspiring, but I, I would say that I'm very inspired by how open-minded millennials are, how they see diversity as a sort of cornerstone of what it means to be a part of our society and what it means to be an American, what it means to be a part of a global society. They are, you know, very open-minded. They value change and progress. And and so I am, you know, I am uh, very inspired by a lot of the young people that I get to meet in my travels. I, I get to spend a lot of time on different college university campuses in addition to spending a lot of time at Harvard University. And I'm very excited about what this, you know, emerging generation is going to do. Um, I'm very optimistic about our future, and especially in regards to uh, religious pluralism. And, you know, I... I would say that as a humanist, you know, I believe that it is up to human beings to solve human problems. You know, I don't think that there's any um, sort of divine or supernatural forces that are going to interfere or intervene in human affairs and solve our problems for us. And, you know, that's not to sort of imply that believers um, think that, you know, God's just going to fix all our problems and we don't have to do anything. But for me, you know, I I feel this sense of urgency uh, for humans to address human problems and you know, I think that we are seeing a lot of, uh, a lot more people feel that way, believer and non-believer alike, that we have, to, you know, whether we agree about the existence of God or whether, you know, we think that there's an afterlife or not, that life in the here and now is going to require that we cooperate and work together. I put, as a humanist, I, I, um, I put a lot of um, my hope and optimism in human potential and in, you know, what we can do as human beings to overcome our problems and and, and so, you know, my, my sort of conviction that we're moving towards a better and brighter future comes in part from that optimism, but it also comes from a place of, of real dissatisfaction with the way that the world is today and recognizing that, you know, it is my belief that we have to make the world better if we want it to be. And, uh, and so, you know, I would say that there's a lot that inspires me as I look out in the world, and there's also a lot that frustrates me, but both of those things motivate me to, to want to see a more pluralistic world and to take action to, to make that happen. Well, Chris Stedman, I very much enjoyed the conversation, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. We've been listening back to a 2013 interview with Chris Stedman. He's the author of the book, Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. At the time of our interview in 2013, Stedman was the Associate Humanist Chaplain at Harvard University. Since then, he has gone on to become the Executive Director of the Yale Humanist Community. You can find out more about Stedman, his writing, and his work at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. This summer, we've been blessed to have a number of really excellent production interns. One of them is Adam Hudnut Boimler from Princeton University. He's been working on a capstone commentary about Game of Thrones. Here it is. HBO's hit series, Game of Thrones, wrapped its sixth season just weeks ago. The prior fifth season wavered in quality. Fans feared a general unraveling of the show. But right when the door seemed open for another prestige show to steal television's top spot, Game of Thrones slammed it shut with the must-see TV episodes of season six. 
Its lauded finale became the most watched episode in the series' history. The Battle of the Bastards and Daenerys Targaryen's dragon battles across the narrow sea ensured viewers saw some of the biggest, most epic battles in both television and film history. However, Game of Thrones Season 6 succeeded beyond its impressive high-budget spectacle. Showrunners David Benioff and D.B. Wise crafted the season's drama greatly around the religious fight for the souls of Westeros. They doubled down on the strong religious convictions that George R. R. Martin had developed in his beloved characters throughout his novels. Religion separates Martin's story from the giants of fantasy that came before him. Certainly Christian allegory informed the narratives of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, but the relevance of their characters' beliefs and divine forces pales in comparison to Martin's noteworthy web of religious systems. In turn, Game of Thrones revolves around religious conflict. The drama heightens through the powers of religious zealotry. Relevant beyond the fantasy, Martin's adept use of religious motivation echoes the myriad religious conflicts throughout human history. And making these connections between Westeros religions and their cultural corollaries can reveal an even deeper level of influence. Underneath the blood, sex, and glory, reflections of modern sentiments about religion reveal themselves in America's most lauded show. Yet, before we dive into the religious events and messages of Season 6, let me run through the religious worldviews at conflict in Game of Thrones. In the North, there are the Old Gods, the gods of the First Men, the mythical first human inhabitants of Westeros. We associate these gods with the Northern Houses, particularly House Stark, but also with the wildlings and supernatural species like the Children of the Forest and Giants North of the Wall. Not a religion of institution, scripture, dogma. Instead, the ancient weirwood trees with their carved, bleeding faces consist the holy sites for worshippers of the old gods. A site for a prayer and a source of magical power, the weirwoods embody the old gods' connection with nature. This northern faith resembles many worldly religions dedicated to the forces of nature, the druids and Shintoism among them. Worshipping the old gods was once the faith of all the Westerosi, but the religion and its magical forces began their descent after the invasion and conquering of Westeros by another race of men, the Andals. With them, the Andals brought the faith of the seven. As they conquered the six Westerosi kingdoms that weren't the north, the Andals grew the faith of the seven to be the majority religion of the land, a monotheistic faith in which the god has seven forms, the father, the mother, the warrior, the maiden, the smith, the crone, and the stranger. The faith of the seven has clear connections to the Christian church and the Holy Trinity. The Christian, and particularly Catholic resemblances, don't stop there. The faith is ruled over by the High Septon, a pope-like figure, and an order of priestly lower septons, and nun-like septas. They all teach from a central scripture known as the seven-pointed star. The picturesque great septa Baelor, their holiest temple, is full of icons and ornamentation, Full of dogma and institution, the faith of the seven embodies all the parts a layman could list to describe organized religion. While in stark contrast to the old gods of the north, the two religions have coexisted in Westeros for thousands of years. Yet a second imported religion has begun to yield influence in Westeros, the religion of the Lord of Light. Evangelized by the red priests and priestesses, they preach a dualistic monotheism in which adherents believe in the one true God, Reholor, a benevolent God of fire. The central belief exists that the worldly realm is engaged in a cosmic battle between good and evil, light and dark. 
This cosmology closely resembles the millennia-old Persian religion Zoroastrianism, but other elements of the faith resonate with Islamic thought. The Muslim belief in the eventual coming of the messianic Mahdi to redeem Islam and rid the world of all evil seems particularly borrowed to constitute the red religion's prophesied rebirth of their savior, Azor Ahai. Noble priests in the show include Lady Melisandre and Thoros Amir. Both characters successfully call upon the Lord of Light for visions and supernatural powers, gaining awe-inspired devotees. Seeing all other gods as false idols, those faithful to the Lord of Light seek converts with astounding religious fervor. And these are just the three main religious forces in Game of Thrones. Martin keenly developed religious beliefs for other important peoples in the books and show. The drowned god of the Iron Islands, the faceless men and their god of death, the Dothraki's great stallion, are all gods that define their people's mission. Now, each of these traditions enhanced the drama of season six. Climactic event after event pushed forward the battle for religious primacy, but also subtly echoed a widespread conversation about America's non-religious yet spiritual desires. In King's Landing, the power struggle between the faith of the Seven's fanatical leader, the High Sparrow, plus his paramilitary faith militant, and the former queen, Cersei Lannister, consumed the plot. The season persisted with scenes of the Sparrow's torturous penance practices, which had climactically seen Cersei's walk of shame, bald, naked, and abused, through the streets of the city at the end of season five. The two sides epitomized two religious extremes— Cersei, as the show's most consistent villain, has long been the show's most unabashed atheist. She mocked the prayers, hymns, and practices of those faithful to the Seven, even in times of crisis. On the other hand, the High Sparrow encapsulated the most violent forms of religious enthusiasm. The season finale saw the explosive culmination of this battle of extremes. Cersei used wildfire to blow up the Great Sept of Baelor, with all the leaders of the faith of the seven inside, and sat herself upon the Iron Throne. But this was not a simple victory. With the dark and somber tone at Queen Cersei's coronation, the show pointedly did not align itself with Cersei's cutthroat atheism. Instead, both extremes are admonished for their villainous brutality. The High Sparrow's violent fundamentalism traffics in the same dark light as the Spanish Inquisition, the Westboro Baptist Church, and the Islamic State and plays into a widespread cultural fear of the dark potential of organized religion. The negative possibilities of Circe's faithlessness are no less derided, and echo the sentiment of a nation in which intolerant questions around the morality of atheists still linger. For the religious ideals of the show and the religious trends of the nation, we must instead look north. Early in the season, perhaps the most prognosticated event was the resurrection of Jon Snow. The exceptionally moral John worshipped the old gods of his native house Stark and knew firsthand the supernatural beings north of the Wall connected to that faith. But the morally suspect Lady Melisandre, a red priestess of the Lord of Light, is the agent whose prayers resurrect the beloved Snow. This places Jon Snow's supernatural salvation in a religiously uncertain position. Which gods are we to thank for John's resurrection? The important framework to understand this miracle comes from the mouth of perhaps the most honorable man in all of Game of Thrones, Ser Davos Seaworth. The Red Lady had fallen into deep religious doubt after the death of her prophesied messiah, Stannis Baratheon, and to convince the priestess to try to resurrect Jon Snow, Ser Davos told her to forget her Lord of Light. Seven gods, drowned gods, tree gods, it's all the same, said Davos. 
His words contextualize the divine intervention. John's resurrection occurs in a non-religious space. The event is supernatural and spiritual, but not the work of any defined deity. Recent studies show that the trend of Americans to self-describe as spiritual, not religious, continues to gain steam. Jon Snow's resurrection embodies that overlap. The divine power needs no name or creed, but still spiritually intervenes to rectify a great wrong. A sense of supernatural justice pervades the moment, and yet alienates no one, thus capturing a non-religious, yet spiritually pluralist ideal. More largely, a sense of the rebirth of the supernatural continues to grow in Westeros. The White Walkers come from the north, dragons come from the south. The magical and the sacred begin to encroach on the ordinary and profane world presented when the show began. It is the end of what in fantasy literature is called the thinning. Westeros is no longer a world thinned of its supernatural and sacred primordial past. Those forces have begun to live again, some with a vengeance. In season six, the religious imaginary of Game of Thrones reflected a spiritual, if non-religious, yearning for something supernatural beyond this world. A yearning that a growing number of Americans can certainly relate to. That was our summer intern, Adam Hudnut Boimler, talking to us about Game of Thrones. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded on location in 2013 at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron and Colleen Pellisier did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.